Hello from Brooklyn, New York. This is Rabbinic Redesign, and I am your host, Rabbi Shira Koch Epstein. We clergy leading Jewish communities through this new normal have unexpected opportunities to meet the needs of our people while also realizing our vision for Jewish flourishing. This podcast helps you access new ideas and helpful resources for successful rabbinic innovation. As we lead through this new normal, are we held back by pachad, by fear, or are we inspired by yir'ah as we think of new ways to lead our community forward? Today, I'm speaking with leadership expert Tara Moore on how yir'ah can move us towards leading in ways we never imagined. Hi, Tara. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so delighted to have you here. I have to say that when a colleague brought my attention to your book, Playing Big Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead, they gave it to me not only because I was a woman executive, but also because of the teaching that you have in your book about yira, yira, and pachad. I translate those as fear and awe. And I know that you were inspired by Rabbi Alan Liu also someone, I, I reread his book every year at the holidays, because it is a book for Yamim Noraim, the days of awe, and that he was inspired by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners who are Jewish clergy a little bit more about what inspired you about that concept and how it applies to your work helping women leaders. Sure, sure. Well, at the time that I picked up the book, I was really early in my work coaching female professionals, and I was just starting to kind of see the patterns of what issues were they bringing, of where were they getting stuck in their careers, or in fear, or in self-doubt, and making myself a student of all of that. But I did not pick up Rabbi Lou's book for that reason. I picked it up as, you know, a longtime spiritual seeker who's always reading spiritual books from various traditions, including my own Jewish tradition. And so I was reading more for inspiration and that. But when I started to read about his concepts for Yira and Pachad, I was really stunned because first he talks about Pachad as the fear of projected and imagined things. So when we imagine the worst case scenario that can happen, when we project the movie, and I thought, yeah, we all grapple with that. That's a very precise definition for this kind of overreactive fear that many of us are trying to moderate in ourselves. But then he went on to talk about Yura, and he says there are three different kinds of instances when Yura is used. When we are experiencing more energy than we're normally in possession of, when we are inhabiting a larger space than we're used to being in. And you can take that as a literal space or a metaphoric space, somehow stepping into a larger space. Or third, when we're in the presence of the divine or the sacred. And when I read that, that's when my mouth really dropped open because I immediately thought about a coaching session I had just been in with a woman who 
had said she had originally come to coaching, just kind of wanting career transition help. And in this one particular session, she had finally spoken this really important truth that she wanted to move to the developing world. She wanted to change out of a banking career into doing something in service. And when she said that, there was an absolute sacredness in the air, the way there sometimes is when you know someone speaks an important truth. And there was also a kind of trembling awe and fear in her at the truth she had just spoken, like <gasps> looking at it. And when I read Alan Liu's words, I thought that was your awe, but we didn't have language for it in that moment, she and I. So we kind of treated it like regular old fear. And that was wrong because what was needed probably then was to like take a bigger breath, to ride the exhilaration of that for a moment, to appreciate the sacredness that's there. But if someone says I'm scared because they don't have the word yura, and we go into all of our normal tactics for everyday pedestrian lizard brain overreactive fear, we're missing out on like the sacred message of, wait, why is this such an exhilarating fear uh, present in this moment? What is this telling us about your path, your soul, your truth? So from then on, that became my framing for working with coaching clients around fear is we, we distinguish, are we feeling pahad or yura? If we're feeling pahad, we look at how do we unhook from it? How do we move into a more regulated, grounded state? But if we're feeling raw, we're really looking to welcome it and breathe into it and resist the urge to run away from it. I can only imagine I feel myself, but for those of us who are stuck making decisions about the health and safety of opening our buildings, we can get stuck in pachad and forget that our job is to help people to recognize the yil'ah that they can find. At the Center of Rabbinic Innovation, as I was telling you, we're working to support rabbis and cantors, anyone who's a Jewish spiritual leader, to take stock of the needs of those who are already in their community, and also to look towards those who might one day be a part of their community if we can reach them and, and find their needs. And then for those leaders to reflect on their vision of Jewish flourishing, and to try new things right now in this situation, to try new things that might address those emerging needs. I've been leading a bunch of hackathons with clergy where people are trying to come up with new ideas to meet the needs and try to look higher and, and respond with opportunity at what's coming ahead. But in listening to clergy, I was particularly taken with some of the ideas in your work, particularly people being stuck designing at the whiteboard, listeners can't hear my air quotes, um, and also overcoming endless polishing. I'm hoping you might be able to explain those concepts to us and maybe give us a few tips for how to address those habits. So, so designing at the whiteboard is a term that actually comes from Silicon Valley parlance. And if you imagine a team at a startup that is discussing, maybe they're discussing what their new product should include and not include, or maybe they're discussing how to bring their product into the market, what kind of PR, what kind of launch, when, what are all the steps? And they've got their whiteboard on the wall and they're mapping out all the plans and they are having a great discussion about this and they're building on each other's ideas and they've got their diagram and all of that. That's designing at the whiteboard. So the surprising thing is that designing at the whiteboard is actually a pejorative term. You do not want to be designing at the whiteboard. And the reason is because 
in the Valley here where in a for-profit context, you have to really, you know it if you haven't gotten your innovation right, because your company doesn't survive and you don't get traction and you don't get customers. And so teams have learned that they actually can't design by themselves in a conference room at the whiteboard. They have to be outside of the building of their company, out talking to their customers, testing their product with customers, running betas of their product, trying things out. And they have to unfortunately do that in a very scrappy, quick, inexpensive way in order to get the information fast enough. So there's a business context in which that's understood. It's not always practiced well, but it's understood. But I don't think we've applied that enough and understood that enough in the realm of our individual careers, our own decisions, the things we make as creators in a nonprofit context or a spiritual context, the same thing applies. And most of the questions that I get from people about like when they're debating the particulars of what they want to create, should it be a memoir or should I make it a fiction project? You know, should my class be six months long or 12 months long? Should we do this as an online event or should we wait till we can do it in person again? Is our program just for young families or is it for everyone in the congregation? All those kinds of questions that people are sitting around and debating or maybe they'll ask an advisor or something like that are actually not questions that they or the advisor can answer. The answer is not on the whiteboard. The answer is not in their head. The answer is out there to discover through the testing and through the conversation with customers. And so that can be a little scary at first because it feels messy to go out there and expose what you know is an imperfect product. But you can also think of it as liberating yourself from this burden you've put on yourself to have the right answer. You can't know who this is for, what it should be called, how long it should be, how much it should cost. You can't know those things. And really getting honest about that. And then go saying, let's play and let's test and find out, is the way to those answers? I feel like that's one of the exhilarating and exciting parts of, and I know for some people, scary brings up pachad, but of this moment when we can't do things the way we used to. I was speaking to a rabbi the other day who's been in his community for about 30 years. And I was saying, how is it going? He's joining one of our rabbinic redesign labs. And he was asking, what is this about? And he said, you know, For the last 10, 15 years, we've always produced our annual catalog of courses before the high holidays. We give it out at the holidays, and it basically, we've planned out everything we're going to do from September through June. And people can sign up, and they know when they are, and it, it goes with our website calendar. And now, we realized we can't plan for the year. And so actually, it's been a little strange, because I'm not done. But I realize that I can try a lot of new things and be responsive. And that's actually some of what we've been trying to help people feel liberated to do, right? That they don't have to plan out their whole year calendar. And that actually not planning everything in advance and assuming the audience gives people the opportunity to do exactly what you're saying, to build relationship with people and say, oh, what do we need now? How might we respond now? And sure, the class might not be as polished. Sure, you won't have six months to develop all of your material. But when we liberate people to say, it's not going to be perfect because it's going to be more immediate, but it's going to hopefully meet the need, I think that that idea of getting people away from just standing at the whiteboard and really helping them to overcome that endless polishing, we all have permission. Who can be polished right now, right? Yeah. And the thing that we call polished is usually 
that's kind of our own delusion, you know, about what's better. It's at best our own subjective view (laughs) and at worst a total delusion. And often, you know, it includes both of those. Yeah, there's craft and there's expertise where maybe as an experienced teacher, you might know, yeah, there's some things over time I'm going to do that are going to truly make this better. But there's also a lot of things you might assume that are making it better that really aren't if you're not listening to your customers and your participants. There's so many surprises in what's actually true for people. Like just an example one for me is that, you know, as a trainer and a teacher and someone who's doing adult learning, usually less content is more because people really need a small bite that they can digest and digest in the midst of a busy life and apply. But my assumption would always be the more time I have to prepare more, add more, layer more, the better. And that's not actually what people want or what serves them. I want to ask you one last question, which is I'm hearing from women clergy in particular who because of specific communal and societal expectations and maybe their own self-driven expectations are feeling particular weight of this moment. Do you have a particular message or something you'd like to share with the women clergy who are listening to this podcast? I so relate. I'm feeling it too, you know, as a mom of two and a working mom of two, I think we have to just discern this line between acceptance of the diminished capacity we have compassionate, loving acceptance of ourselves, and then also choosing what do I want to fight for? Like today for me, it was, you know, okay, writing today looks like I'm exhausted. My head is foggy. I'm getting interrupted by a call about, you know, a family member needs to get a COVID test because some of exposure they had and I need to pick up. I normally wouldn't pick up a call in my writing. I need to pick up that call. So I have a lot of lowered expectations for my writing, but I am not willing to give up on it. And I will block out and guard my writing time, but I will also accept a different outcome from that time that I would have in another period. So I think it's both, you know, it's the loving self-acceptance and ability to let it go when it doesn't go the way we want it and yet not letting go what's most vital to each of us. I really appreciate your saying that. I think it is one of the things that I'll say as a woman clergy person with children myself, if we don't figure out how to prioritize some of the things that were important to prioritize before, we'll only take more steps back. And so I just want to amplify what you just said to pay attention when we're making those choices about what we feel called to do, to also recognize, someone said this to me when I was dealing with Hurricane Sandy, to recognize what are the things that only you can do that someone else can't do, and what are the things you can leave for someone else? And so I think that perspective of not forgetting what we are working for and paying attention to where we ourselves are the people who must step up because no one else will. And on that note, I want to thank you for stepping up and encouraging so many people to step up. I'm going to direct our listeners to pay attention on our website at centerforrabbinicinnovation.org, where you can find more materials on Tara and all of her work, and also be redirected to her website at taramore.com. That's T-A-R-A-M-O-H-R.com. You can find her writings, her book, her blog, and if you'd like, you can also sign up for courses that she offers. So Tara, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. It's a joy. Thank you.
Like Tara, I'm so inspired by the teachings and writings of Rabbi Alan Liu, Zecher Tzadik Levracha. Every Elul, I reread his book, This is Real, and You Are Completely Unprepared. And I'm so excited that Tara has used his teachings to inspire us and all kinds of leaders. If you'd like to read more about Tara, her work, link to her website, or to her courses, you can find more information on our site at www.centerforrabbinicinnovation.org slash podcast. You can also get links to buying Rabbi Lou's books and to downloading other resources to help you as you prepare to lead the Chagim and into the new normal. Special thanks to our operations guru, Heather Wolfson, our editor, Andrew Kroger, the Office of Innovation, and our fiscal sponsor, Hillel International. This podcast is a program of the Center for Rabbinic Innovation, made possible thanks to the support of the Jewish Community Response and Impact Fund.